Well, last week, if you weren't here, we started a series that we're calling Life is Amazing. And you have to say it like that every time, okay? Life is amazing. And we're talking about discovering God's will. It's these questions that we all have, right? Like, what, what job should I take? What city should I live in? What relationship should I pursue? What, what, what um, pants should I wear today? Okay, well, maybe we don't get that specific. But we all have these questions, don't we? God, what do you want me to do with my life? If you're God and I believe that you are and you have a plan and I believe that you do, how do I align myself with it? And we, we spend a lot of time and we might lose a lot of sleep asking that question, God, what do you want me to do? And at times it can be laborious and at times it can be maybe a little bit annoying to go, God, I just, I just don't know. What we want to say in this series is that that feeling of I don't know is, is also the very feeling that makes us feel like we're alive. That if we, got a, if we sort of did away with that, if we just knew exactly what to do at every moment in time, or we were just robots being controlled, life wouldn't be nearly as amazing as it is. But the reality is, is that God has given us choice. He's given us freedom. That's why, you're, that's why if you came last week, that's why you're back today, because you believe that your choices matter, and you have the, the ability to choose between a myriad of different options and what you do with your life. If you didn't believe that, you wouldn't be here today. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be giving this sermon. Last week, and we'll talk about this each week because we want to give a little bit of framework. Last week we said, if you were to read through the scriptures, you're going to find three different types of wills of God in the scripture. Now, you can't go to a single passage and find these. You need to sort of um, dig and mine a little bit. But let me give you the first one. It's God's sovereign will. That, that's the, thus saith the Lord, this is going to happen. God is in heaven, he does whatever pleases him, the psalmist says. But that's different than saying everything that happens is God's will, or that God wills everything that happens. Because within his sovereign will, God said to some things, I'm going I'm to give you freedom. You're going to have to use your brain, it's not a decoration, it's not a hood ornament for your life. You're, you should actually use it, right? We're going to talk about that today. But within God's sovereign will, there's a lot of freedom. We said last week, and if you weren't here, you might want to write this down. God gets everything he wills, but he doesn't get everything he wants. So there are some moments where God says to us, I've given you free choice and you've chosen to go one direction, but I wish you would have done something else. The second type of will of God is his moral will, or what he said, this is the way that you should live. This is the way that you should live. These things are, are wise. We're going to talk about that today. And then the fi final sort of will of God in the scriptures is the individual will. And most of the time when we say, God, what's your will for my life? We're talking about his individual will. Where, where should I move? What job should I take? When should we retire? What, what, what relationship should I pursue? Should I say yes or no to this proposal? What should I do, God? What should I do? That's his individual will. And this morning, what I want to talk about is the way that his moral will and individual will for our lives converge. And I want to do so in talking about two things. First, your calendar, and second, your soul. And those two things are actually way more connected than we often think they are. It's interesting. If you were to, to read through the Gospels, and I'd encourage you to do that at some point this year, and just made a note of every where Jesus asks a question, and you were to write those questions down, here's what you would find. That Jesus asked roughly 300 questions that are recorded in the Gospels. That's a lot of questions. 
The first phrases of Jesus ever recorded are a question. The last phrase of Jesus on the cross is a question. 300 times. Um, What's also interesting is that Jesus was asked 180 questions in the Gospels. Now, that wouldn't have been uncommon for a rabbi to be asked questions. Rabbi, what should we do? Which direction should we go? How should we live? Some of the questions Jesus asked people were, why do you call me good? What are you so afraid of? What do you want me to do for you? If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you, really? Do you want to get well? What do the scriptures say? How do you read it? Do you love me? He asked 300 questions. It feels like my dinner table sometimes. <laughs> like Jesus was embracing his inner childlike faith, right? Lots of questions, lots of questions. And he was asked 180 questions, and some of them were really important questions. Questions like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Of the 180 questions that Jesus was asked, um, as best as I can read it, and some really smart, way smarter people than me can read, um, he answered, just, just try to guess how many of them he answered directly. Just in, just in, your, just in your head. Five. Five. 180 questions asked, five directly answered. So I'm just going to throw it out there, okay? If we are expecting that Jesus would interact with us differently than he interacted with people as he walked this earth, maybe we're off. Let me put it a different way. When we ask God a question, maybe in response we should expect a question rather than an answer. Like, that reframes the question about God's will pretty significantly, doesn't it? Like, if we start expecting that God would ask us a question that would help lead us. Now, now Jesus didn't ask um, sort of just haphazard questions. He asked questions that helped lead and guide people to wisdom. He helped them discover the answer. But you know what happens? When someone asks you a question, you are on the playing field of life, aren't you? If they tell you the answer, you can be a passive spectator. But when you're asked a question, things change, don't they? That's why the best rabbis, the best teachers, they led people to conclusions that somewhere deep down inside, they already knew. They just needed a little help uncovering. What if, what if, what if, what if? I'm just going to throw it out there. But what if we started to expect that Jesus would ask us questions rather than give us answers? What if our interaction with God about what his will is today aligned way more with the way that he teased out his will in scripture instead of what we wished he would do? Um, Let me give you one example. This one fascinated me as I stumbled across it again this week. Um, Saul of Tarsus is persecuting the living daylights out of the church. God meets him in a bright light on the road to Damascus, and listen, it's in yellow. Here's what God or Jesus says to Saul. Saul, Saul, stop persecuting me. That's not what he says, is it? He asks him a what? A question. Why are you persecuting me? And maybe there's a dialogue that happened. I don't, I don't know. Now, eventually, he gives a command. Go, go into the town. You're going to find a guy. Um, but Notice, God doesn't give him all the information right there. 
He just gives them one more step. But that step begins with a question. Maybe we should. I'm just going to throw it out. Maybe we should start to expect that God would interact with us the same way that Jesus did with the apostles, the disciples, that um, God did with the apostle Paul, or became Paul on the road to Damascus? What if we started to believe that God was way more interested in leading us towards wisdom than giving us answers? It would change our discussion about God's will, would it not? And I'm going to argue today that it would align us far more with what we find in the scriptures than some of the magical incantations that we sort of long for when we enter into this discussion about God's will. So um, Ephesians chapter 5, will you flip over there with me? Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look at a text of scripture. We're going to dissect it today where Paul, the apostle Paul, that same Paul who got asked a question that eventually introduced him to Jesus, is going to lead this church in a pursuit of finding themselves in God's will. And here's what he says. Look carefully then how you walk or as you live, how you live, verse 15, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now notice what Paul does. He directly connects wisdom with what? The will of God. Um, don't be unwise. Don't be, he'll, he'll use two different terms, foolish. But no, no, no. Align yourself with the way of wisdom. Because that's what God's will is. God's will is wisdom. Or, or maybe we could say it like this this morning. God's will is grounded in God's wisdom. Now, I don't think you actually need the qualifier God's in front of wisdom. I think you can just say God's will is wisdom, because all wisdom is God's wisdom, because wisdom is simply alignment with reality. That's what it is. Maybe best summarized by the famous theologian Dwight Schrute, who said this, (laughs) whenever I'm about to do something, I think, would an idiot do that? And if they would, I do not do that thing. What is wisdom? You looking for a quote about wisdom? And the wisdom in a nutshell is not doing what an idiot would do. That's what Paul just said. Let's close in prayer, okay? Let's close in prayer. Now, what is, what is wisdom? Wisdom is concerned with reality, okay? Wisdom is concerned with the way that the world actually works. Wisdom notices the difference between things. Wisdom is the ability to take a project to the finish line. Wisdom is practical. It's pragmatic. Wisdom is able to observe cause and effect. When this happens, that also happens. Proverbs, the Proverbs are filled with all sorts of pithy um, wisdom insights. Here's, Here's a few of them from the Proverbs. When you're lazy, you'll be lacking in money. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. If you wake up your neighbors early in the morning, you're not going to have a lot of friends. (laughs) It's just saying, right? Just saying. Yeah, these are all like pithy bits of wisdom from the Proverbs. Wisdom is the ability to choose the right path at the right time 
to say the right thing at the right time. Wisdom is not information. Wisdom is not intellect. Wisdom is boots on the ground, living in the world God has created in the way that God has wired it to work. That's what wisdom is. Which is why I'll go back to this point, incidental point, but I actually think it's fairly important that you don't need the phrase gods in front of wisdom. If it's just alignment with reality, I'd argue if it's wisdom, it's gods. Which begs the question, do we want wisdom? Do, do we want wisdom? Do we want God's wisdom for our, our finances? Do we want God's wisdom for our sexuality? Do we want God's wisdom for our relationships? Do we want God's wisdom for the way that we live? Do we want God's wisdom if it means that our wisdom, quote unquote, is off? Do we want it if it grates against some of our desires? Because I, I, I'm going to throw it out there. At times, it will. It will. There was, a, there was a moment in time when wisdom was in vogue. Like all of the famous people in the world would write about wisdom. They'd write about the way that the world works. Like these are the names that we still know, the Aristotles, the Plato's, the Socrates. They were, they were trying to unpack wisdom. They were trying to say this is the way that the world actually works. And I don't think we live in a day and time where wisdom is as popular. Desires are popular. But wisdom, I don't know. I don't know. But what Paul's saying is that there's a path, there's a road that is wise, that it is the way that the world actually works, and, and then he says um, there's a path that's unwise or that's foolish, and you, you, you get to choose which road you walk. Every moment of every day. And the year was 1857, and there was a man by the name of Alexander Dawson. And he was charged with building a lighthouse on the coast of Australia. And he began looking for a site that would be suitable to host his lighthouse. But unfortunately, this man, Alexander Dawson, was way more interested in the ease of building a lighthouse than he was of the functionality of said lighthouse. So he picked a site that was close to a rock quarry. The only problem with the site was that it was a terrible place for a lighthouse. And, and listen to this. It says, when the pilot's board went out to verify the location that Dawson chose, they found that the site was not visible from required approaches. They also found that Dawson's map suffered from discrepancies so grave that it would be impossible to decide whether or not the positions marked on the map really actually existed. The board also suspected that he chose the site solely because it was closer to the quarry and he planned to obtain stones from there. Despite the glaring deficiencies and disagreement by the majority of the board, the reasons are not fully known. The chairman of the board authorized the construction of the lighthouse. And for the next three decades, more than two dozen ships banged into those rocks right on the coast and met their maker at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> this is a picture of anti-wisdom. 
Um, Dallas Willard said, reality is what you run into when you find out you're wrong. <laughs> this is, this is anti-wisdom, right? And it's all over, you guys. It's all over. Like, take for a moment. Let, let's just do some cultural diagnostic on our situation, our cultural moment. Some anti-wisdoms of our day and our time. Like rugged individualism. This is part of our anti-wisdom, isn't it? Like, I can do this on my own. I'm good. At, I, I've got this, right? Um, maybe hedonism is an anti-wisdom of our day. Like, I'm just going to chase that next thing, that next high, that next pleasure. Materialism, if I get enough, if I get bigger, if I get brighter, shinier, newer, then I'll be okay. These are all examples of Dawson's Lighthouse, and there are numerous ships at the bottom of each of those lighthouses. Some of you may go, I've got one there. It didn't work out. And that's why what Paul is writing is just, it's so important. And what he's going to do is he's going to tease out really two big pieces of wisdom that Jesus calls his followers to walk in. And let, let, let's look at what they are together. Here's the first one. Here's what he says, verse uh, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as wise, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. The word time that he uses there is this Greek word kairos. Will you say that with me? Kairos. Yeah, it means like opportunity. It means seizing the moment. Imagine Robin Williams standing on a table telling his class, Carpe diem, seize the day, make your lives extraordinary. And Paul's just echoing the same sentiment. Wisdom recognizes that there will be opportunities that have a time limitation on them. And wisdom is able to step into those moments because we're, we're ready. We're ready to, to seize that day, to step into that moment. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 90, verse 12, about wisdom, he says, teach us to number our days. God, help us to recognize that one day we will be no longer here on this earth. That we might gain a heart of wisdom. And I think Paul would echo back and go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And within these days that we do have, God's going to bring opportunities our way, and we have to be ready to step into them, or else some of them might pass us by. And so what is, what is wisdom? Well, it's choosing to seize opportunities and maximize influence. That's what it is. Maybe you might just write, that, write this down. Decide that I'm not going to waste my life. That's what Paul's longing for. He longs for us to live the kind of life where we don't look back on it at the end and go, I wish I would have, or I think I could have, or I might have. Bonnie Ware, a now famous Australian nurse, she was um, um, working in palliative care, which um, helps to give dignity to people as they're dying. 
she started to ask her patients, what are some of your regrets about your life? And she wrote what's now a, a famous work where she summarized those things, but the, the top five regrets people had about their life, listen to these. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life truer to myself and not the life others expected of me. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Dramatic pause. <laughs> I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I'd let myself be happier. And so what Paul wants to say to this church is, listen, if you want to align yourself with God's will, you've, you've got to live in the world as it actually is, not as you wish it were. That's wisdom. And part of wisdom is being ready to step into these moments that have like time stamps on them. They're not going to last forever. And as I tried to sort of dig through the New Testament and figure out what does this actually look like, there were three things that just jumped off the pages to me. Um, here's the first thing. What does this look like to actually live this kind of life? And if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write these down. First, it means that we prioritize today over tomorrow. Now, that may sound strange because the scriptures are not anti-planning, but they are strongly grounded in the present moment. In fact, it shocked me as I did this study about God's will. So little of God's will discussed in the scriptures is about what's coming in the future, and so much of it is about how we live right now, today. I loved Aaron's song. Um, I'm going to choose to follow you, and the rest is going to work itself out. That's a New Testament summary of how to live in the will of God. In fact, the New Testament uses very strong language for people that say, well, I'm going to do this in the future. Listen to James, right? He says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go and do into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, there it is, there it is. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever, catch this, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. He's going, what? let's talk about God's will. Do you know the right thing to do? Not, not tomorrow, not in a week, not in a year. Right now, right now. God's will is now. I, I don't know about you. There's so many barriers to being present in a moment, aren't there? I, I, I think that they're, they're, the two main ones are the past and the future, right? That we get, we get caught in the guilt and shame and regret of the past, don't we? Or we get caught in the anxiety and fear of the future. What, what is gonna, and both of them, both of those, that tug of war has the ability to paralyze us. And like you two said, we get stuck in a moment and we can't get out of it. That's why I'm so grateful that at South, we have recovery groups, we have care groups, and listen to these four groups that are coming up. If you feel like you're stuck in a moment and can't get out of it, 
Celebrate Recovery meets every Tuesday at 6.30, okay? Grief Share is starting to meet. They meet Fridays. Divorce Care meets, Dave, when? Tuesdays. Uh, we have a pornography addiction group that's starting. And look up at me for a second. I can't tell you how grateful I am to pastor a church where we say we are not going to turn a blind eye to some of the things that are a little bit messy but are destroying our souls and feel like we can't get healthy from them. We will be a church that meets those things head on and speaks the light of the goodness of the gospel into them. If we don't, who will? So so here's like, these are all like today steps, right? Like, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, well, it's sin. If you know you should get help and you don't, yeah. here's the second thing. We've got to choose faith over fear. We've got to choose faith over fear. I, I love the way that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says this. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious, as if like you could put that on a task list and, list and just knock it out, right? But he actually gives you a methodology. Don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or your body, about what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and your body not more than clothing? The rhetorical answer to that is, well, sure. And he says, look, look around you. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, gather into barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Like your, your problem with anxiety is actually that you're not aware enough of the world that you live in. You're not paying attention. Your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? See, living in wisdom means choosing faith over fear. And choosing faith over fear means that we believe two things according to Jesus. First, we believe that God is powerful, that God is good, and that God is loving. That's number one. Okay? This is wisdom, right? Good, powerful, loving. Secondly, we believe that we have immense value to this good, powerful, and loving God. That's what Jesus says. And at that point, we're freed to actually walk in his way. And then finally, finally, what does it look like to seize opportunities, to maximize impact? Well, we've got to choose impact over ease. Have you ever recognized that the path of least resistance very rarely yields the most influence? Like, it's those hard conversations that actually bring something out of them, isn't it? It's that hard decision that you make where you have to give up some things that actually births some good, some fruit, some beauty, some love, some meaning in your life. And I think in order for us to step into the way of wisdom, we've got to get over our addiction to ease and comfort. We just do. And so all throughout the New Testament, um, the writers of the scripture are going to talk about this. They're going to say things like, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, that you're going to step into moments that aren't going to be easy, and you're going to have an impact there. Or 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, for it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will. And hey, parentheses, sometimes it might be. So part of our grid for what is God's will and what isn't God's will cannot be, does it sting? Does it hurt? Because maybe that's what he has for us. Because he's way more about impact than he is about comfort. I read a 
not read, I, I was told a story, someone from our church who, um, after she came to the um, Won't You Be My Neighbor series, where we talked about stepping out and neighboring. She said, it took me a while, Ryan, but um, I, I finally hosted a tea for a bunch of the women in my neighborhood. And she said, I had people in my house that lived near me, but we hadn't really talked, and there was just these great conversations. And she said, I just want you to know that, that we're listening. I loved it. Impact over ease. What's easier? Just close the door. Close the garage door. Huddle down. Impact is saying, no, 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 no. Come, come on in. I'll invite you into my life and around my table. I ran across this quote by Anonymous. He's got some good quotes out there. <laughs> he's, all, he's also got a lot of prayer requests, so he or she's hurting, but... said this, a ship in a harbor is safe, but that's not what a ship is built for. Come on, come on. So what if we just take a moment and imagine that Jesus was asking us some questions? What are you planning on doing tomorrow that you could do today? Why are you so afraid? I always imagined that that was a rhetorical question when Jesus asked it in the Gospels. What if he actually expects an answer in a dialogue? It's not, why are you so afraid, you idiot? (laughs) Why are you so afraid? Let's talk about that. Well, I'm afraid because of what people will think about me. And then maybe Jesus responds with another question. "Uh Uh-huh, and then what'll happen? Well, then they'll think poorly of me. Yeah, and then what'll happen? Well, then, well, I don't know. I guess then I'll think I'm not as good. Uh-huh, and then what? And then what? And then maybe Jesus wants to help you get to the actual core of the issue rather than running from a shadow. Maybe Jesus wants to ask you, are there places in your life that you're choosing ease instead of impact? Look at the way Paul continues, and I'm going to admittedly fly through this part, and I apologize. He says this, and here's the second piece of wisdom that Paul wants to give that aligns us with God's will. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. That's just seeking after a filling from pleasure, from hedonism. But be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is a, a, an imperative. Be filled with the Spirit is an imperative. It's a command, but it's a passive Okay? It's an imperative, do this. Passive, you can't do this. Anybody notice some tension there? Right? It's position yourself to be filled with the Spirit, because when you position yourself to be filled with the Spirit, God will fill you with His Spirit. Right? So on our Monday video that we released that goes along with each of the messages, if you're subscribed to the daily, I'm going to unpack the difference between the filling of the Spirit and baptism of the Spirit. We don't have time to today other than to say that there is a difference and that the baptism of the Spirit is something that happens upon belief for every believer one time. But the filling of the Spirit is something that happens and can happen over and over and over again. And what Paul says is, you can be a follower of Jesus and not be filled with the Spirit. That's possible. You've got to actually put your life under the reign and rule of Jesus, open yourself up, ask for it, and he will deliver it. I always tell people when we talk about the filling of the Spirit, 
it's not about how much of the Spirit we have, it's about how much of us the Spirit has. But implicit within Paul's command here is that we're all empty vessels looking to be filled. Whether it's filled with pleasure or maybe filled with the desire to run away. We're all empty vessels, every single one of us. That's not a Christian thing. That's not a secular thing. That is a human thing. And Paul says, what you fill your life with will determine whether or not you're walking in wisdom. And think about it. Like the constancy of getting drunk on wine is actually a desire to run away from reality, is it not? It's I don't want to take the world as it is. I actually want it in another way. It's anti-wisdom. It's anti-wisdom. And Paul pushes back against that, first addressing our calendar, and then second, addressing our soul. And here's what he says. He says, man, reject grasping for fulfillment and receive filling. So, so catch this, the Spirit's filling always leads to the Spirit's leading, which always bears the Spirit's fruit, okay? So filling, leading, fruit. So what filling of the Spirit cannot be is a mindlessness. It can't be a chaotic impulsive, it's, it's actually way more thoughtful, way more, to use a term that's popular, but, but I believe as a, a Christian backing to it, way more mindful of the world that we live in, way more aware, far more clarity to be able to say, God, I want to walk in your way. And when that happens, Paul says, well, okay, well, here's what you can expect. You can expect love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, fi- faithfulness, gentleness, <laughs> Self-control. Did I miss any? <laughs> Kindness. I might need to we work that, right? Like, yeah. Like, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like when it comes out of us. And I love this here. Paul just says, like, just be filled. And maybe his readers knew more about this than we do. I doubt it. He doesn't give an equation. He doesn't say, like, do this to be filled. It must mean that it's not all that difficult. Like, like maybe if we want it and ask for it and release the things that we're carrying in its place, then maybe, maybe we should just expect that it happens. He says this, and I'll land the plane here. He goes, okay, well, you want a list of, I'm not going to tell you how to get it, But I'll tell you what it looks like, addressing one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody, like addressing one another. So when you're filled with the Spirit, um, there's this outward blessing. You make melody in your heart to the Lord, there's this like upward praise. Have you ever been around somebody that's just like whistling a hymn or a song all the time and you're like, you need to settle down? or finish the song? You ever been around someone like that? It's just one phrase. Don't point at anyone. I will point at my wife. She's sitting there second serve. Um, but like, yeah, yeah, where it's just, there's just something in their soul, right? And God goes, yeah, yeah, 
that's my will for you. That's my will for you. Giving thanks that there's this like inward gratitude, giving thanks to the Lord for everything in every situation, it seems like all-encompassing, doesn't it? It's supposed to, right? Outward blessing, upward praise, inward gratitude. Yeah, you, you want to know what God's will looks like for your soul? That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. So here's what I want to do. I want to just, I'm going to invite Aaron to come up, and I just want to give you a few moments to ask yourself some questions. And what I'd like to actually do is imagine that Jesus is asking you these questions. So this is just some time to, to think before you go running out of here because we've, we've said some things like wisdom, is, God's will is God's wisdom or God's will is wisdom. What's the, what's the wise thing to do based on the reality of the world? What's the wise thing to do? And then Paul goes, well, here's the wise thing to do. Make the most of your opportunities and be filled. Like, because that can happen. That can happen. So here's a question. What are you planning to do tomorrow that you could do today? So maybe, the, maybe, the, maybe you just see the face of Jesus and he just asks you, why are you waiting? Why are you waiting? What if you just saw his eyes, those loving piercing, faithful, good eyes asking you this question. Why are you so afraid? And not in a condemning way, but in a way that he like really expects your answer. Why are you so afraid? And then maybe imagine him asking, yeah, and then what after you answer? And then what? Maybe you, maybe you imagine him asking you, why not take the harder road? Like what's, what's holding you back from really stepping into this moment? Maybe some questions about your soul. What are you, what are you pursuing? What do you, what do you want? Like, like imagine the, the Messiah saying to you, what do you want? Like really, what's in your heart? What do you want? And then maybe a gentle follow-up question from him would be, yeah, what, what are you hoping to get out of that? Or maybe he goes Dr. Phil on you and says, how's that working out for you?
maybe ask sort of a painful question or a beautiful question, depending. What type of what type of fruit do you see coming out of your life? What do you see? And then like maybe he asks, what do you want to see? What do you want to see? he says man do you think it's time is it time to, to reach out for help Jesus asked 300 questions in the gospels he was asked 180 he answered five of those directly. Maybe his goal for you is to help you uncover the answer you already know. And maybe he wants to do that by asking you some questions. One of the things that I wrestled with all week, and maybe you do too, was, hey God, like, what about those times in my life, and they are more than I'd like to admit, that I've chosen the path of foolishness, of unwisdom, <laughs> anti-wisdom. What about then? And I, I just sensed him saying, oh, yeah, Ryan, Ryan, like, that's what Romans 8, 28 is all about. And, and I'm able to work all things together for good. Like, I can even weave those bad, terrible decisions into a path that says, like, this is, this is going to be for your good, for your beauty, for your life, rather than your death. I'm, I'm able to take those. Like, like, don't choose those paths intentionally, but I'm God. And I can even take those things and weave them together. And maybe his last question for you today, if that's the place you're in, maybe he says to you, do you believe that? So Jesus, our prayer is that you would help us believe. Help us hear. Help us, help us be attentive, not just to the answer we're looking for, but for the question that you might be asking. It's in your name that we pray. And all God's people said...